Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. In this episode, we're going to drop back into the past, almost to the very beginning of South Africa's wine industry. We're actually lucky to know the birthday of South African wine. On February 2nd, 1659, Jan van Riebeck, the first governor of the Cape Colony, wrote in his diary, Today, praise be to God, wine was made for the first time from Cape grapes. Wine growing then grew over the following decades, and several estates from that period are still in operation today. They're not just historical landmarks, either. Some of these estates, having survived the ups and downs of over three centuries of history, remain innovators and leaders in South African wine today. We're going to hear from three wineries, as we typically do, but I'm going to start off by letting each one share a big chunk of their history all in one go. That'll set the scene for the rest of our conversations, but right up front we'll get to see what the scope of such a long history looks like. Just to introduce myself, my name is Murray Barlow. I am the cellar master at Rustenburg Wines. We're a family-owned and run operation out of Stellenbosch, and I farm together with my family, so we own and run the estate, and it's been in our family since 1941. So to go through the early history of Rustenburg, you've got to go back to the founding of Stellenbosch. So Stellenbosch is the second town established after Cape Town. Stellenbosch is founded in 1679, and the land around Stellenbosch was granted to various individuals that had farming know-how. And um, in 1682, the estate was granted to a gentleman called Rulof Passmann, who came from the Rhine. And he was the first person to name Rustenburg. And he came from a small hamlet called Rustenburg in the Rhine. And that's where the name comes from. The first alcoholic beverage that we can say was produced, or we have proof of, was in 1692. And that was in the form of a gallon of brandy, which was sold to a midwife from the Cape. She, she was actually an employee of the Dutch East India Company. And when her receipt books were scrutinized or analyzed by historians, they found that the property had sold a gallon of brandy. As a midwife, we don't know what she used it for. We can imagine what she used it for for medicinal purposes. But really, if we look at that Dutch era and we look at our records and the records that have been found, the majority of what was produced here from an alcohol point of view was brandy and fortified wine. Obviously, there was a small population of people in the Cape at the time, but the biggest demand would have been for the shipping trade, the spice trade passing around the Cape and needing forms of alcohol that could be very robustly transported to hot and humid parts of the world, obviously going both directions to and from Southeast Asia and Asia where the spices would have been traded and, and shipped, and then obviously back up the west coast of Africa. So that's, I think, why those forms of alcohol were produced. They're very robust. It's difficult to really mess up wines once you fortify them. And then we see, obviously, the impact of the Napoleonic Wars is, is where we see a, the administration change. What we know today is the Netherlands was invaded by Napoleon in about 1795. And then eventually, when Napoleon was defeated in 1813, soon after that, the British took over the administration of the Cape. And that was obviously a very big turning point for wine because the British already gave Cape wine merchants and Cape wine preferential tariffs. So they were, I think, a third of the tariffs that were placed on Portuguese wine, which was quite popular at the time. And so that really helped 
wine flourish. And that's where we start to see our records of red wine production really growing and becoming important and not just fortified and brandy being made on the estate. Just before the British took over, we see an interesting event on the estate where the, the farm was split into two properties, one called Rustenburg or remaining Rustenburg and the other one called Squin Gezicht. Beautiful face of the mountain or beautiful view of the mountain's face essentially is, is how it should be interpreted because we're right up against the Simonsburg mountain range. So that's an interesting part of the history and I'll tie that up together shortly. So under the British administration, as I mentioned, things really boomed, but then Towards the end of the 1800s, South Africa didn't escape phylloxera. So Rustenburg lost all of its vineyards to phylloxera in around the 1880s. And then in 1892, John X. Merriman purchases the Squinchuk portion and his brother-in-law purchases the Rustenburg portion of the estate. And from about 1894, they start replanting the vineyards. So there was a period where no wine was produced, but they were very instrumental in replanting and reestablishing the vines and carrying on with our wine growing history. And then if I look at my family's association with the estate, it starts in 1941. My grandfather was educated in the UK at Cambridge and those sort of Oxbridge colleges all have phenomenal wine cellars. Even to this day, we have a lot of good customers from those colleges. He drank a lot of great claret and loved Cabernet Sauvignon and really wanted to find a property that would be well suited to producing Bordeaux-like wines. And he unfortunately was called up to the Second World War before he could do that. But in 1941, managed to get special leave to purchase the Rustenburg portion of the estate. If you recall, it was split in two. And then at the end of the war in 1945, when he returned home, he was able to purchase the Squinzov portion of the estate and then reunify the estate back to almost its original granted title. It's about 95% of its original granted title today, which is very unique. Many properties have been split up multiple times and are unrecognizable from when they were first granted. But going a little bit further into my family's association with the estate, if we look at each sort of generation, they've all had an impact. So my grandfather focused on replanting the vineyards he also brought a herd of Jersey cattle onto the estates for dairy milk production. It was also fruit. It was a diversified farming operation. We didn't produce a massive amount of wine, but we were one of the few estates to survive through the KWV establishment and all of the other restrictions that were placed in terms of quotas, et cetera, on the South African wine industry. So that was really my grandfather's side of things, a diversified farming enterprise. And then my father took over in 1987 and it was just as apartheid was being dismantled and many of the single channel government marketing boards were disintegrating. So there was fixed prices for farmers and single channel marketing into various markets. And those were all falling away as, as free market systems were being introduced. And so many of the farming operations which we had being sheep and dairy and fruit really went through a very tough time. And so in the late 80s, he decided really to focus purely on wine. And at the same time, there was a great boom in the demand for South African wine. And we opened our eyes and we had people who were on our doorstep who could now legally buy and import and distribute our wines all over the world. But we had very old vineyards, a lot of leaf roll virus. We had old technology in our cellars. We had a lot of Britannomyces issues and we really needed to modernize. My father, Simon, imported 
about 300,000 vines from Montpellier in France. He set up a nursery in the Caledon region, which is traditionally a wheat growing area, so quite isolated. Although today more and more people are looking to plant vineyards in that area. So we replanted the estate and he not only brought in clones of varietals, which performed very well, but he also did a big trial on a number of Rhone varietals. So brought in the first Roussan into the country and we produced the very first Roussan in South Africa. And we planted Grenache Blanc, Viognier, Verde, Syrah, Grenache, and then brought in new clones of Cab, Sav Blanc, that was planted for the first time. Merlot, Petit Vido, and Malbec were brought in, and Cab Franc as well. So it was a real reboot from the vineyard point of view. And then he also built a new cellar, converting one of the old dairy sheds into a new cellar. And so really today, I'm very fortunate to have the cellar operation or the seller side of things where I'm, I'm mainly focused being a, a wonderful facility, but at the same time having these wonderful mature vineyards or mature ring vineyards to work with, I should say. My name is Jacques Fulun. I'm the seller master red wine maker for Boschnal Wines. If you have a look at where Boschnal is situated, Boschnal is on the Franschhoek wine route between the Kurt Rockenstein mountain range. There's about a six kilometer stretch on the Drakenstein Mountains and right up to the foothills of the Simonsburg Mountain, which is also a very well-known mountain in the Stellenbosch region. Just from that point of view, a phenomenal property, and you can just imagine why it is one of the properties that was secured way back in the late 1600s. 1685 is quite a significant date for us. Um, Boschnal is known as the second oldest wine form in South Africa, so there's beautiful and great heritage behind that. There was a big thing about the French Huguenots coming over to South Africa itself. There was a bit of religious prosecution in France, and then obviously the French came over. A very well-known French Huguenot who made history securing Boschal itself was Jean Lelong. Jean Lelong is a name that we also use for our Blanc de Blanc MCC, one of our prestigious MCCs. So 1685, quite a significant date. We've got a range in the Boschnell range, 1685, just once again, taking you back to that heritage itself. But then in 1715, there was once again also some of the fellow Huguenots was the De Villiers brothers. The Villiers brothers secured Boschnell as well in 1715, it, it stayed in their family itself for about 165 years. But then I would say in 1812 was also quite a significant date because there's a, the Cape Dutch Manor House. If you come to South Africa, specifically to Cape Town itself, you would see part of the heritage and part of the history is those Cape Dutch style architecture that is secured. And, and I think that's one of the beautiful things of Boschnal itself. They've built Cape Dutch style architectural manor house. But if you come to Boschnal itself today, it feels like history was frozen in time. So even though we're in the, we're in a new world country, but in the new world, in the modern day, coming to Boschnal, they've really kept everything in such a pristine condition, which is absolutely amazing. So you will really get that feeling like you're walking through history, which is absolutely phenomenal. Then in 1896 or the late 1800s, through South Africa, Phylloxera destroyed 
a lot of the vines and a lot of the vineyards itself. Luckily, at that stage, the, the prime minister of the Cape Colony, Cecil John Rhodes, he secured Boschnell and he actually went in a joint venture with the De Beers a mining company, where they basically took it over. Now, they restored Boschnell to what it was supposed to be, to almost to get it back to glory, investing in the property itself, believing in the property, obviously, after something like phylloxera, you can basically be eliminated. And they basically took it to the next level. The Beers took over in 1902. So just in the beginning of the 1900s, they took over completely. And they basically brought back the winemaking potential. Obviously, starting off with uh, Cecil John Rose, but just brought back that winemaking potential in Boschnell itself. And that's where that heritage and that beautiful winemaking story of Boschnell, as we know, it actually started. But then I think another significant date, the date that is very special to myself, is then 2005, where DGB, Douglas Green Bellingham, invested in Boschnell into the wine brand itself. I'm Andre van Rensburg. I'm the winemaker at Fergelief and Wine Estate in Somerset West. And I've been the winemaker here for the past 23 vintages. Now, Fergelichen was founded in 1700. And it means, in old Dutch, it means situated far away. Because to travel from Cape Town to Fergelichen was a full day on horseback. And it was a journey filled with a lot of danger. Runaways, slaves, murderers, robbers, wild animals, elephant, rhino, lion, bovi. So it was quite an exciting time. It was pioneer stuff here to establish a wine farm. And even in the 1700s, when Van der Stel, the first owner of the property and the then governor at the Cape from 1700 till 1708, he planted over 400,000 vines, uh, which I think was enormous because we only surpassed that amount about four or five years ago. So I think it was incredible what they did in those days. The Oudvergelegen, which was then probably 8,000 hectares or 18,000 acres roughly, it's a huge piece of land. Political officer at the Cape was not supposed to own land. The farmers that settled here had farms of, say, 25 to 50 hectares. So the playing ground was never even. They had to buy seeds flowers, slaves, whatever from the Dutch East Indies company. He simply took it and used company assets and farmed with company slaves. So he was just a totally corrupt individual. And that's why he got sacked in 1708 and recalled to the Netherlands. And that was the end of Van der Stel. The Dutch East Indies company gave instructions that the manor house be destroyed and that the winery must be destroyed. Unfortunately for us, not everyone at the Cape agreed with it. So the manor house was saved. The winery was destroyed and parts of the farm sold off. The original part uh, with a manor house and some of the vineyards were retained and uh, the rest across from the current Vergelegen were sold off to uh, most of his detractors So that also tells you a little bit. They knew that Van der Stel had a good thing going here, and so they wanted to buy the land after his departure. I would say the period from 1942, deep in the 1960s, Vergelegen, 
wasn't producing any wine. And most of the vineyards were uprooted. One of the vine owners, Lady Florence Phillips, said there were enough. And I quote her, that's not necessarily that I agree with her statement, but she claimed that there were enough poor wines produced at the Cape, and Fergelegen is not going to contribute to that situation. So she had vineyards uprooted, but when the property was sold to Anglo-American, the big mining conglomerate, in the middle to late 80s, 1987, if I'm correct, Anglo decided to restore the property to its original, and that was planting vineyards. We've planted roughly about 120 hectares under vines now, 60-65% red, and the rest white. The first winemaker in the modern era is a guy called Martin Miner. He was the winemaker from 87 till 97. He was my senior at Varsity, the University of Stellenbosch at Wine School. And the interesting thing is Martin recently retired and I've planted a new Chardonnay vineyard this winter with a very special clone, the bone clone from Burgundy. And I haven't contacted him yet, but I'm going to name that vineyard after him. So it will be the Martin Miner Chardonnay. With the birth of democracy in South Africa in 1994, the country's wine industry went through a number of changes. A lot of work has gone into looking at the health of the vineyards themselves, for one thing. The industry has also put a great deal of effort into sustainability and conservation. About 95% of the industry is now certified as sustainable. And the industry has put 140,000 hectares of land into permanent conservation status. That's 50% more land than what it even has planted to vineyards. Rustenburg today is about 880 hectares in total. We have about 120 hectares under vine. And then we're also buying in fruit from the region. So we are pretty much 100% Stellenbosch in terms of where we're sourcing fruit from. And we crush about 1,200 tons. So if you speak to an Australian, we're a sort of a small to mid-sized winery. If you speak to an Austrian, we're a massive winery. So it really depends who you speak to in terms of our size. We source fruit from throughout the Stellenbosch region. So we work closely with, I think it's about 12 growers now, and we're sourcing throughout the region. Half the estate is mountain land, so we can't farm it, but it's very important for biodiversity and also for all of our water resources because we do get water from the mountain. But it would have been a decent-sized farm. At that time, they would have only really farmed in the low-lying flat areas, and a lot of the pictures and the notes that we have from those times show that. Very little was done at altitude or on steep slopes, just simply because to get horse-drawn plows and carts and all that up the mountainside was difficult. Today, we farm from altitudes of 200 meters above sea level right up to about 580 meters above sea level, all on one estate. So it's a lot of mountainous area. It's very hard on machinery. So I can only imagine what it was like without mechanization in terms of tractors and, and those sort of implements. But that was the real hidden gem, I think, when we started to replant the estate in the 90s was to go higher uh, and explore new terroirs. Some of the sites were areas for sheep and cattle grazing, so no one had ever planted vineyards. And they're wonderful sites, and obviously they're later ripening sites, which is not necessarily a bad thing considering climate change. But at the same time, later ripening can also be an issue if you are lapsing into the first rains of winter or autumn. So we're in a big replanting phase at the moment. We're planting between four to six hectares a year, 
and pulling out various blocks. We've generally quite a lethal virus-free farm, but that's also something we're combating and, and pulling out virus vineyards. There's one thing that the rest of the world seriously is behind us, and that is in terms of our status of the vines at Tegeligen. If we're not the only, there's probably just a handful of wine producers in the entire world where all the plants are virus-free. Every year we test all the vineyards on the property for liberal virus type 3, which is the most important one. And it's very simple. The presence of antibodies indicates that it's positive, there is virus. So even before the human eye will spot uh, liberal symptoms, we pick it up with the testing, the vine is destroyed. We treat the surrounding vines with an anti-feeder that prevents the spread of leaf roll, and in that way we keep the property clean. And I think in terms of what it does to the vine, in terms of grape quality, wine quality, I think it's comparable, probably even better than the ungrafted vines of Chile. It's a health status, and you cannot argue that there's just a superb factor in our favor. Fagelichen is currently about 3,000 hectares. It could be closer to 3,500. So it's half of the original property. The biggest other portion is Lawrence Estate. And then Erenvale, the housing or gentleman's housing estate with a golf course. And then Morgenstern next to us, which produces the best olive oil in the world and some pretty smart red wine as well. And then... Behind us, it's a property called Waterkloof with one of the best restaurants in the Southern Hemisphere and indeed one of the best in South Africa. So you can see it's actually a hotspot for everything that's good, from olive oil to restaurants and, of course, stunning wine. And beautiful, natural beauty. The property, Fergenichen itself, has got over 350 different Feinbosch species, plant species, more than 130 different bird species, about four to five different antelope species. And quite recently, the largest antelope in the southern hemisphere and probably the world, the eland, was re-released onto the property. A couple of snake species for those that find the reptiles interesting and the amphibians here. But it's the flower kingdom that's more important. If you look at Vergelegen and its size, there's probably a bigger variety of plant species than in the entire Northern America. If you want to find out about Vergelegen climate, you actually have to spend the day here because you can have all four seasons during any other seasons. It is just so varied. We are approximately six and a half kilometers from the ocean. And at the highest point on Vergelegen, where most of our whites are planted, and especially the top sovios, you will see that there's a V in the slopes Come if you look towards the ocean. And that draws in the cooling wind from the false bay area so that in winter, the cold air comes in, pushes up a hot air down at the bottom and it rises to the top. So in winter, the entrance to the farm is approximately five to eight degrees colder than the top area where my white wine vineyards and my cellar is located. In summer, it's just a other way around. It's warm at the bottom and very cool at the top. And any time of the day or night when you travel from Stellenbosch to Somerset West or to Vergelegen to be specific, there's about a five to six degrees temperature difference. Cooler at 
So we've got a longer growing season. Our harvest start later. We won't pick any whites before middle of February. And then Stellenbosch has been harvesting for a long time. Anything from two to three weeks, if not longer, depending on season. And when they finish the red wine harvest, middle to end of March, so first month autumn, we basically start with red and we finish red wine harvest middle to end of April. And if a year is so good to give me a little bit of botrytis, sweet grapes to make sweet wine, straw wine, whatever, from uh, my harvest will end normally first to second week in May. So it's a long season, anything between 10 and 14 weeks. We are trying to restore the property to its natural beauty of 300 plus years ago. So alien vegetation that was brought in by European settlers have all been removed and destroyed over the last 20 years. It was a huge job. It was the biggest privately funded alien deforestation program in the wine world. So we saw the recovery of indigenous species that we've even thought could be extinct or severely endangered are now coming to the fore. We're discovering a lot more about Fergelegen every day. We're trying to bring back animal species because you need to look at a holistic approach. We need to make the circle whole again. And you do that through the animals that have been here. About two and a half thousand hectares on the property have been set aside for nature conservation. So there's no agriculture allowed in that areas. And it's absolutely uh, astonishing to see animals that have disappeared probably from this area 200 plus years ago. They are re-released into the system here. We're looking at other animals that occurred here. They will be released in future on the property. Obviously, things like lion and elephant and rhino will never come back because we're surrounded by suburbia now. And we don't want to make headlines for uh, people killed by lions or trampled by elephants. But I think what we're doing here, and it's a whole team, it's not just the winemaking or production team. There's a estate team that's doing stunning work. And that helps us to limit pesticide application, fungicide application. We've reduced all those things by approximately 25 to 50% in some vineyards. Weedicides have basically been culled from the program. When you drink Fergelegen wines, I think you're seeing an unspoiled entity where everything is now coming back and coming together again, and and that's quite exciting. Boschel itself is standing for sustainability. DGB, Douglas Green, Bellingham, but Boschel itself, it's all about sustainability. Even job creation, you can really see that people do matter and being sustainable. If you go to the restaurant, you can really do that farm to table and you're farming with Black Angus cattle. They've got their own little garden that they're doing on the side, which is quite organic, bringing it into the restaurant itself. If I just think of winemaking, obviously it's it's really important for us, low carbon footprint. If I think of the water saving, aerobic treatment of the water and of the wastewater, we can irrigate back into the vineyards as well. And I think there's something like a 12 million liter water saving on that side. Then just to help with the, the power situation, once again, just being eco-friendly, we've got a lot of solar panels 
at Boschmel, which at the end of the day, the kickback of that is about 43% power saving just from that side. And then obviously we can chat about bottling the Boschmel. We bottle some of the premium heritage ranges at the Boschmel site. All the MCC is being bottled here as well. But just from a bottling point of view, once again, having a look at carbon footprint, power saving, water saving, but also in some instances, lighter weight bottles, just once again, that plays a role at being sustainable and doing the right thing. Boschnell itself is 2,250 hectares, of which 200 hectares is my planted under vine itself. But when DGB started investing, they had this premium strategy of securing the best possible cool climate vineyards in the Cape Coastal region. They've also invested in property in the Elgin region. They've invested in the Helderberg, Salamos region. So what we've realized in the past, maybe you secured a piece of land and that's what you had. And people were very focused on being in a state. So they only made grapes from that specific area. And that actually limited you to a certain extent. But like I said, there's just so many various different areas. If you haven't been to South Africa, you wouldn't realize. But I think the one special thing of South Africa is just a very different microclimate. If you have a look at South Africa and the wine-producing region in South Africa, it's actually a small area. But the diversity is immense. I think in South Africa, we are just blessed with very different microclimates and totally different terroirs that we can really go and secure what we want. And to make those wines, that's absolutely phenomenal. And that's standing out and really making sure that we are making terroir or terrain-driven wines. I remember I wasn't at Boschnell at that stage in 2005, but it made quite an impact and quite an impression on myself. Just knowing Stefan Hubert, who was the viticulturist at that stage, knowing that they're investing heavily in their growers out there and making sure that they're securing the best possible sites out there. We've got a long-term relationship with our growers. So it's not a highway for Boschnell making the wine and a dirt road for the grower. It's a two-way street, looking after them, making sure that they're looking after us, making long-term contracts to have that relationship, to make sure that we've got consistency in the brand over time. And I think that is very special. That's why I feel quite privileged to be part of Boschnell. The grape varieties grown in South Africa have changed through the years. Semillon actually made up more than 90% of the vineyards in the 1820s, and Cinceau was a big leader after Phylloxera. Chenin Blanc then took the lead in the 1960s, and since the 1990s, reds like Cabernet Sauvignon and Shiraz have really upped their role. In 1990, 80% of South Africa's vineyards were actually planted to white grapes, whereas now, reds make up almost half of the country's plantings. I think the Rustenburg Dry Red really put Rustenburg on the map, particularly in the 70s and 80s. That was a wine which was co-fermented and blended at the crusher, so you had very ripe Cinso, which was being blended into quite austere Cabernet, probably on the border of being ripe. So you had this very big structure and power from the Cabernet and this sort of lovely juicy fruit and drinkability of the Cinso. And it was a fairly affordable wine. I'd say probably in today's money, it would be the equivalent of, let's say, a 15 or 20 US dollar bottle of wine retail. Not cheap, but accessible. Really became quite an icon, the dry red, because it was quite unique and just something unusual for the time. And then the Cabernets, 
again, were always a part of their state during that time too. And the great vintages, many of those wines from often the even vintages of the 70s and 80s, funny enough, the even vintages tend to have been the ones which have lasted, are still brilliant. They're still really good. And that, I think, helps us in modern times build on on the reputation. Beyond that, we just have the terroir for it. And if you get it right, Cabernet Sauvignon is fantastic. I think it's about planting it on sites that are not too cold, but also not too hot. And to give it a long ripening period, it's very important. So we're lucky with a little more altitude and a lot of west-facing slopes that get a lot of afternoon sun. We tend to find that we, we get that balance. And so the farm is just really suited to it. And we're also just so lucky that it's such an international varietal. So all around a home run for us, really, on, on the cab stakes. We've really learned a huge amount. What we've come to realize is that if you look at the varietals which perform best, they make great wine 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 vintages. They, they tend to be performers in warm years, cool years, dry years, wet years. And the varietals which are maybe not that well suited maybe get it right 5 or 6 times out of 10. And we're still really learning about the terroir and the sites. And we've learned a huge amount these last sort of 25 odd years. So the focus for us going forward is to really rein in the Rhone varietals. So we no longer have a large number of them on their state. No more Mouved, no more Viognier. We eventually plan to remove the Roussan and the Syrah as well. The two varietals which have performed phenomenally well have been Grenache Noir and Grenache Blanc, which we planning to keep and actually expand. And then on the border varietal side with the reds, Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot produce phenomenal wines all over the estate. Although we've decided to plant mainly Cabernet Sauvignon on the west facing slopes and then the south facing slopes to more Merlot, the cooler slopes for us in the southern hemisphere. And then we have a single vineyard of Petit Vidot, which you only need a little bit of in your blending. But I think the biggest move for us has been in terms of changes that I've instituted or I'm, I'm working on is Malbec. Malbec was first introduced onto the estates in the year 2000. And every single year we had a single vineyard of it and we would blend it into the John Merriman, which is a Bordeaux-style blend. And every year it was a shoe-in regardless. It was always just a lovely, juicy, fruity, phenomenal wine. And what I started to see, particularly in the UK market, was that Malbec as a varietal was no longer just being pigeonholed as an Argentinian speciality. So I started to sniff around and speak to a few farmers in the area about it. And many farmers have planted some of the very early clones of Malbec. The first clone that arrived in South Africa or that was planted was called Clone One, which is very creative. I've ever named that, that clone. But it's a varietal into very poor sets. So your berries don't fertilize. You have green berries or little pea-sized berries that don't evolve into proper fleshy berries. It's impacted by wind, so you've really got to choose the site quite well. So many farmers had planted it, burnt their fingers and pulled it out or just hated it or were producing nice Malbec one out of every three or four vintages. So not many people had planted it, but many new clones were being introduced. And we've now got about three different clones that we, we have experience with. There are another about four clones to try and that we are experimenting with. And it's really a varietal that really produces lovely wines. We found throughout Stellenbosch, warm and cool sites. And it's really, I think, ticking a lot of boxes in terms of the fact that you don't need to pick it very ripe. You don't need to wait for the pyrazines to ripen or the tannins to soften necessarily. So you can happily produce 13, 13.5% Malbec from an alcohol point of view. 
So I really think there's so much going for it from the terroir to the, the, the viticulture, the winemaking and the market that it's quite a natural fit for us. So that's one of the things that I've introduced during my time here. And I think we're going to see more and more of it. Um, very excited about it. And then on the white side, we really focusing on Chardonnay in a big way. Chardonnay was originally brought in by my father, Simon. So he had worked with a gentleman called Desiderius Ponkratz. And he was a Hungarian nobleman that had come to the Cape and was a viticulturist, looked after a lot of the distillers corporation's vineyards. And he taught my father about all my father's vineyard practices at the time, viticultural knowledge at the time. And when he found out that my father was going to work in Sonoma, he taught him how to take a selection of cuttings. And so dad brought home illegally some Chardonnay, grafted onto vines outside our house and produced a little bit of Chardonnay in our garage on the down low. Unfortunately, the vines he grafted the Chardonnay onto were virused. But before that, there were various parts of, of this material which were distributed. And a few years ago, we quite excitingly, we actually rediscovered a small block in the bottle array that had been planted to this selection. So we are actually isolating this selection and we potentially might reintroduce it into the future if it does produce nice wine. So that is an exciting modern reconnection to that plant material. But really over time, we've come to a house style in terms of our Chardonnay. We'd be lying if, if we said we hadn't really consulted widely in Burgundy about it. And the style we've settled on is very much slightly richer style. Everything is whole bunch pressed. Everything is wild fermented. The wine spends a long time on lees. Its entire time in barrels on its lees. We, we don't sulfur the wines generally in barrels. So we're happy for malolactic fermentation to carry on. And so we tend to find we produce a style which satisfies both old and new world Chardonnay drinkers. It's a variety we can plant anywhere and it performs. So it's really very well suited to the estate. And it's a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin, and also a bit of Grenache Blanc. But we've done all this experimentation and we're really coming back to a real core of quite conventional varietals. Not to say that it's, it's boring, but there are quite conventional worldwide accepted varietals. We're not setting the world too much on fire. I suppose the most out there focus is the Malbec in terms of where we, we're going. But to be able to produce great Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon that are both very commercially relevant, I think it is a blessing. I'm very grateful for, for that fact. Different regions, different grapes. Or sometimes different regions, same grapes, but different styles. Boschendal's exploration beyond the fruit they grew on their estate has even led to the creation of a whole new range, the Appalachian series. I've just blended 1685 Shiraz 2019 vintage, of which I would say a third of that is from Elgin. And that's the beautiful thing about Shiraz, is that you are so blessed. It's doing well in Elgin. It's the heart is from Stellenbosch, good concentration, and then going to that darling side also once again brings some beautiful other flavors. So it's a combination of different areas, making it quite a complete Syrah or Shiraz, doesn't matter what you want to call it. Elgin is just a phenomenal area for grape growing in general. If you think of South Africa, you probably think sun, warm, going to the beach, and it's a country of sunlight and warmth. And that is true. But area like, for instance, Elgin, Quite an extreme area, it's very cool, very cold, it's very significant for a slow ripening period so that you can get good tannin ripeness without getting sugars that's jumping through the roof that 
you can really make the style of wines that's nice and elegant and fresh and tight and that's got that longevity. And there is some challenges around it. Sometimes you can struggle with a little bit of rot. But I think Stefan Hubert and Heine, who's the new viticulturist, but Stefan Hubert used to be the viticulturist. He fell in love with that specific area and he realized the potential. We just realized, just like Stellenbosch or Swartland or whatever, it actually has its unique identity. And it's worth it to mention that because that area is so special. So the Appalachian series started with Chardonnay. It has just got that minerality. It's got that beautiful flint. It's got that longevity, low pH, natural analysis. It was phenomenal. And just having a look at Chardonnay itself, it was almost like, Pinot Noir from that area is also going to be phenomenal. So it basically started with those two. We've also got the Blanc de Blanc, Jean Le Long, which is a phenomenal cup classique made from 100% Elgin Chardonnay. Spending five years on the lease as well, we've secured those vineyards for the Jean Le Long. But then we've also got the Grand Cuvée, which is a blend of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, once again cup classique. That spends about three years on the lease. Both of those are small production, but that's also focused very much on Elgin. So Chardonnay Pinot Noir from Elgin region. But then we've got something that's doing extremely well. We do the Brute Non-Vintage, which is almost like a 60-40 Chard Pinot Cup Classique. We've got the Brute Non-Vintage Rosé as well as the Demi-Sec. The Demi-Sec is on the lower end of that, about 36 grams per litre of RSO. Cup Classique, Quite a big focus for us. It's between 15 to 20% now of our portfolio. Then, of course, we've got Stellenbosch. Stellenbosch is also an area that's really close to my heart. Even though Boschnal is on the Franschuk wine route, we're basically on the foothill of Simonsburg as well. So Simonsburg, Helderberg, Stellenbosch Mountain, it all plays a significant role the Bottler Ray, Polka Dry area, the Helderberg and the foothills of the Helderberg has played a huge role in our portfolio. What we've seen is that Cabernet, the way we like Cabernet, the way that structure, depth, complexity, layered flavors of Cabernet Sauvignon, if you want that for us, it is from Stellenbosch. If you talk about Sauvignon Blanc, then we get to the Cape Town region. If you go to Durbanville, for those of you who have tasted the Durbanville Sauvios, it's just different. It's a totally different flavor profile, for instance, to what you would have Sauvio in Elgin. But once again, amazing terroir and terrain for that. There's a guy called Charles Beck from Fairview in Palm. And I don't think any person in SA Wine would be upset if I say that he's probably the most innovative winemaker in South Africa and probably one of the most innovative winemakers in the world. He's like a jack-in-the-box. It's always a new thing, a new idea. And I believe it was already in the late 80s, early 90s that he could have produced the first Sauvignon Semios unfortunately didn't take off. And I, at the time, was working at a property called Stellenzen, just on the other side of the mountain from Vergelegen, that belonged to a German banker by the name of Hans Schreiber. And he allowed me total freedom, so I started looking at what Charles Beck did. And 
initially it wasn't a peer border, but it was Sovio, Semio, and around 20% Shenan. So it worked and the wine was well received in, the, in terms of wine competitions. And when I moved to Vergelegen at the 1st of January 1998, Vergelegen planned at that stage to produce just two wines, a red Vergelegen and a white Vergelegen. And it was a philosophy that I've always found very interesting, very much like Bordeaux Chateau. And so I started playing with the two great whites, Sauvignon and Semillon, but it was only about 2001 that we put the first prototypes in the bottle. And that was after tasting some very old white border that it sort of told me that this is a way to go for Vergelegen. We cool, we can produce stunning Bordeaux influence white wines, if you want to call it. And we didn't have Shannon on the property and we still don't have Shannon on the property. So the easy thing was to go with Sauvio Semio. And the first year, the wine wasn't actually a blend. It was 100% Sauvio, wooded Sauvio. And it did very well. It was a platter five star. And then we moved it slowly. We changed it to about two thirds Semio. And to this day, the best Vergelegen whites are roughly around 60 to 66% Semillon and the rest Sauvignon. We're Southern Hemisphere, so we should be the opposite to the Norman Hemisphere, where it's normally 60 to 70% Sauvignon and 30% Semillon. But we prefer more Semillon. It adds something to the wine. Our Sauvignons can be very racy, very linear, very high in acidity, extremely fresh. So you need more Semillon to change it to make it a different, to make it a more complex wine. And even with two-thirds Semillon, we often find that for the first two to three years, the Sauvignon still dominates. And that's around year five that the Semillon starts kicking in, the wine becomes more rounder, more waxy, more kind of orangey marmalade, and touch of spice and faint boss. We have a very realistic approach to winemaking. So we see the influence of what we're doing in the vineyards on the estate in the wine. And the wine over time has become more faint boss influence and just pure Sauvignon derived characters. And I think that's why maybe we can call it, maybe we can be so arrogant or to have a luxury of calling it a Cape First in terms of classically influenced white wine. It works for us. Uh, we're not looking at anything else. It's a Vergelegen kind of benchmark wine for us. It always does well. And my view on the wine is very simple. Don't drink it till it's at least three to five years old and then put a lot of bottles away for the next 10 plus years if you've proper storage conditions. The two most important grape varieties on the property are families. So it's Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Sauvignon. And then it's followed by Merlot and a touch of Cabernet Franc and uh, sprinkling of Petit and, and Malbec. So Vergelegen is in its influence and its outlook. It's pretty much we're looking at Bordeaux. We're surrounded by a big water mass. The climate is very similar. So it's pretty much Bordeaux orientated and its outlook on winemaking. And you, you will understand that if you visit the property, we're surrounded by a big water mass, the Falls Bay, the Indian Ocean, and mountains on the one side. So the winters are cool 
I would say it's colder than Stellenbosch. We get snow two to three times a year on the mountains. So the temperature will drop to about zero to two degrees Celsius, which is cold, but it's, it's not a freezing kind of situation. Average minimum temperature in winter will be about four degrees Celsius. So it's a good area to cultivate vines. The summers are dry and warm. So the climate is pretty much like water with one big difference. Our rainfall is spread over the period, say, April to middle of October. So it's mostly typically winter rainfall or Mediterranean rainfall where a border could have a lot of rain during the growing and a ripening season. And that is uncontrolled water that you don't necessarily want or need. And it leads to problems like rot. That is an unknown thing on Vergewegen. We have wind that dries off the vineyards. And even though it's dry and hot in summer, the wind blows virtually 365 days a year, cools the vineyards down. That leads to a long growing season. And then the other thing that you guys in the Northern Hemisphere, that is old soils. We have seriously old dirt, between 600 million and 1,000 million years old. So you guys were not even, I don't think God even thought about making the Americas if you were a believer in, in, in the creation process. I always say that, yes, and it's tongue-in-cheek, I believe in the six days creation. Six days he created the rest of the world and when he realized he has got a hold on the whole creative process, he made Vergelegen to show the world what a great artist is. So that is my very personal and obsessive view about Vergelegen. But we are in a unique growing area. So we're surrounded by mountains, open to the ocean. It leads to a, a fantastic microclimate, long growing season, old soils, decomposed granites, that leads to poor yields or low yields, never more than five, five and a half tons per hectare on average, long-term average, but good intensity, and it gives longevity to the wines. And I think as a winemaker, you can't really ask for more than that. to wrap up our podcast with a U.S. perspective on the wines that we've been discussing. And this time I've turned to Master Sommelier Christopher Bates. Christopher owns FLX Hospitality up in the Finger Lakes area with a number of outlets as well as the Element Winery there. And he was also the first winner both here in the U.S. and internationally for the Wines of South Africa Sommelier Cup back in 2010. So he's had a long history working with the wines. Christopher, how are you? Great, Jim. How about yourself? Good, thanks. One of the reasons I wanted to highlight historical properties is many sommeliers, especially, are really caught up on some of the younger boutique wineries in South Africa, but they lose track of the fact that South Africa has a deep history making wine and that these wines, these wineries, are often still quite innovative and leading the way in terms of quality. What was your experience when you first started studying South African wines? Were you familiar with the country's history? It was funny about Probably I visited South Africa for the first time almost 20 years ago now. So I think it was probably 2001. All the new cool kids that we talk about weren't <laughs> there yet. So ultimately, these were really some of the first properties I visited on my first trip to, to SA. And I remember going to some properties who had obviously seen incredible investment and who were really at the cutting edge and at the forefront. But it was also a time where 
a lot of people were in that transition period where all of a sudden you were seeing a lot of construction happening. You could almost just watch the wineries changing over in that style, it's whether it was in oak usage or ripeness or replanting, obviously one of the big sort of key factors that happened after apartheid. And that reinvestment was all the replanting that happened and, the, and sort of the changes in wine styles that were brought about by both clonal changes, but let's be honest, taking out disease. Yep. So you mentioned that investment back in, in the right around the turn of the century. So now when you taste the wines, are you seeing the results of that now that the vines have matured and things like that? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think back on my first visit, I was seeing wines that were a mix of very modern with real big focus. And this was a smaller percentage of wineries, big focus on ripeness, big focus on oak influence and cleanliness. And then the other 70% of the wineries that hadn't started that transition yet. And I think probably thinking back maybe 10 years ago from now, so in this interim phase between my first trip and now, seeing a lot of properties really shifting to that far more new world style of winemaking. Mm-hmm. And what I think is really exciting is coming back every year since and seeing them pull back a little bit more and more on that. And now I think is really coming back to being really well balanced. Certainly they, a lot of these producers are still showing a really opulent new world style. Not everybody, but I think a lot of them definitively are, but we're seeing it balanced in a way that I don't know that, 10 years ago it was, which is awesome. So you mentioned we sent you a few wines there. I think one of them, maybe we should start with the white, which was the Verglichen. Yeah, so I'd love to start with the white, yeah. Yeah. So this is a white Bordeaux style, Sylvain Blanc and Semillon. What would you think of this? So I love, first of all, I love white Bordeaux. Let's be real straightforward about that. I absolutely love white Bordeaux. But I also really have just over the years, been so blown away and impressed by the Semillon and especially these Semillon Sauvignon blends that we see in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And this wine, I think, just shows absolutely stunningly in that style. Again, there's opulence and ripeness to this wine, but it's refined. There's mm-hmm. still minerality. There's still herbaceousness. And definitively, there's some strong oak usage in here, but it's elegant. It's restrained, and it's really balanced with the fruit and sort of spicy herbal green components that we see coming out of this. It's luxurious as, as frankly, oaked Sauvignon and Semillon are meant to be, but refined. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that if it were a true white Bordeaux from Bordeaux, you would expect serious application of oak so that the wine would stand to the test of time and that would integrate and so on and so forth. So that is true to the style in that sense. 100%. A, I can't wait to see where the evolution of this wine takes this bottle. Because these wines also age super well. And I think that's something that also, as you mentioned, has been maybe forgotten a little bit in kind of modern day interpretations of South Africa. But my experience, one of my loves of South Africa is the ability for these wines to age incredibly well. I think the other wines we sent were a couple of reds. I know you've got the Hartenberg there, right? The Stork Shiraz, I think. Were you familiar with this property? I am. My familiarity with them probably goes back 15 years ago to the first time. I think I probably met Helen somewhere along the way in one of my travels. And she has a incredible restaurant and food geek. And so bonded immediately talking about our love of lamb and barbecue and braai and all the goodies. But I've had the opportunity to visit many times and have really had a great time watching sort of their evolution as well. So this is their Shiraz. Now, 
a lot of times when we think of Shiraz or Syrah in South Africa, I think the attention goes to places like Parl or, or Swartland, but they released as a Stellenbosch producer specialized in Shiraz early on. So does this have a Stellenbosch style that you would recognize compared to those other regions? You know, I think ultimately Parl and Stellenbosch and, and the Swartland in particular, I think, could be separated a little bit in their sort of terroir. But I also think that it, it would be remiss not to talk about the difference in their wine styles also having a lot to do simply with stylistic and winemaking choices based off of culture and history. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happening in the Swartland, I think I love, I've always been a big fan of it. But I think that those wines are made in a different style and a different generation in a lot of ways. There's oftentimes a lot less opulence, a lot less ripeness. And I think for me, this really definitively is a wine that's a little bit more opulent and ripe and in that style that we would talk about as Shiraz style. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a more, to use the shorthand, old world Syrah style. Correct. As much as we love using terms old and new world to broadly categorize and generalize, <laughs> as opposed to something that's maybe a little bit more lean, a little bit more herbal, a little bit more savory. Though there's still certainly some of those qualities in here. There's this kind of mintiness to it and that kind of dark black olive savory and things like that. But this wine isn't dominated or driven by its black pepper or its olive or its game or bacon or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think we have one other wine. And now we're, since we're staying in Stellenbosch, we're doing what Stellenbosch is known for, which is Cabernet or Cabernet-based blends. So this is the Rustenburg John X Merriman. Yeah. So I remember visiting Rustenburg. My very well might have been on my first visit there. And it was one of the first places that you, you could see the energy that was going into modernizing these wines yeah. and really catching them up. And now tasting this, it's been a while since I've tasted this wine. It really, to me, talks about just the brilliance of, of these kind of Bordeaux-styled wines here. And across Stellenbosch, it, for me, it's the the work that can happen with Cabernet is great. But oftentimes, we maybe forget about the work that can be done with Merlot here. And this wine is partially Merlot with Cab and some other Bordelais things in it. But there's a big percentage of Merlot here, which I've always been so impressed with from Stellenbosch in general. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm noticing is, as I said, it's been a while since I've tasted this wine, is that we are getting a little bit more of this kind of mineral graphite, this sort of stony, rocky quality coming through in this. Something that I always think about is that like pencil shaving, that cedar quality, right. and almost like a oat bran kind of quality to this kind of sweetness to it. And that for me, I think is really intriguing. That's coming out of this wine. Again, we, all of these are actually our 2015s. We're looking at a wine that's got five years of age on it at this point. Right. And fruit isn't the first thing that you smell in this wine, which I find really intriguing and something that I really I like about the evolution that we're seeing in, in both these bottles, but also just the way that these wineries are going. But it's really cool to watch and see the fact that the industry has been going for so much longer than I think people have really started to recognize it for. Obviously, here in the States, it's taken off in the last, I don't know, God, I'm getting old now, so I can't quite remember how <laughs> then. But what do you think? It's probably been seven years since South Africa's actually started to be cool. 
Uh, well, that's very kind of you to say. I, it happens I've been with Rosa for about seven years, so <laughs> I'd agree with that number. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Seven years in September. Jesus. Okay. So yeah, even back 10 years ago, I still remember the looks I got from other Psalms when I would say that I thought that what I was starting to see happening in South Africa was really interesting and exciting. And it was back in those days, 10 years ago, that I started to talk about the wines of the Mullineux and, and the Saudis and that sort of generation of folk and the Alheights even. And I remember people looking at me going, South Africa? <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden, it was probably yeah, seven years ago that all of a sudden I started seeing them popping up on cool kid wine lists. And we started to see other people actually starting to talk about them in a positive way. But we forget that these wines didn't start 10 years ago. It didn't start with what's happening in the Swartland. They didn't start with what's happening in Hemel and Arda, though those are great and awesome and exciting wines. When we go further back, we really find what I think to be the most exciting stuff here, which is the fact that when you taste South Africa, you're you're tasting 350 years of winemaking history here. And whether it's going back to wines that were made in the 80s and the 70s or the 50s or to the wineries that have been doing it for 100 and 200 300 years now. I think there's a lot to be said here. Well, I think it's uh, interesting you mentioned that because one of the things I find more and more as I talk to even these younger, more boutique winemakers is a lot of their inspiration comes from those wines, the Cabernet and the Cabernet Cinso blend that Rustenberg produced back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, all the so, hips that's coming out now. Yeah. As a look, it's looking back, just looking back to a different time than maybe we have a memory of here in America. Yep. And I think that's a really exciting thing to be looking at. It's exciting to taste what they were doing five years ago. I look forward to tasting what they're doing today. And frankly, I look forward to seeing what happens in five years from now. I hope you enjoyed our look at these historical properties. You may have noticed that we only alluded to one region that actually plays a hugely important role in the history of South African wine. If you'd like to dig in a bit further and hear about the South African wine that was the talk of Europe as early as the 1760s, check out our episode on Constantia, number eight in the series. You can also find more resources and links to the various producers we've talked to at our website, wosa.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode, we'll look at a region that vies with Stellenbosch as the heart of the South African wine industry. It was the third town established after the Dutch arrived in the Cape, and for much of the 20th century was home to the largest winery in the world. As the name indicates, it's the pearl of the South African winelands, Parle. Thank you.